So at the end of Jonah chapter 3, we saw that God surprisingly relented of the disaster that he had threatened in the face of Nineveh's equally surprising repentance. And that brings us to the also surprising conclusion of the book, the final chapter, where we will clearly see, I think, some of the book's main lessons for the church, for us today. So we're going to make three points. They're there on the inside of your bulletin in the outline there. God, the plant, and pity. So, first then, God. And here we mean Jonah's anger at God is is what I'm after here. Nineveh, having repented, right? God having relented and shown mercy, we're told in chapter 4, verse 1, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Or in some translations, he was exceedingly displeased and he became angry. It's really remarkable, right? Jonah's preaching has had this, you know, extraordinary, inconceivable success. No preacher, you know, would not love to have had the outcome that Jonah had. You preach a five-word sermon, right, and the whole city of your enemies converts. <laughs> he, so he's seen the repentance of a massive, strategically important city. He's seen the enemies of Israel call upon the God of Israel. And he is exceedingly displeased. Literally, the text says, it was exceedingly evil to him. And so, of course, what you have to do here is ask yourself, how could this possibly come to be? He had learned, apparently, to hate these people and to want them judged. And who could blame him, really? Right? The Assyrian regime was a brutal, terroristic state. What was good for Israel was their judgment. And what all right-feeling people in Israel wanted was their judgment. But this show of mercy, it's exceedingly evil to Jonah. It's clearly unfair, scandalously so. And so we see here that this prodigal prophet is much more profoundly the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. And that elder brother is one nasty character. He looks good. (laughs) He looks good on the outside. He would never miss church, the elder brother. He would never say so, but he's a nasty character. He operates, Jonah operates like the elder brother operates, by law and not by grace. I have a diagnostic question that I use on myself and I use on anyone who's willing to listen to it. Here's the question. If the people in your life, especially the ones closest, your spouse, your children, your friends, your coworkers, if they could use just one word to describe you, and they had to choose law or grace, right, which one would they use? Because I'll tell you, people breathe one or the other. It doesn't mean we don't have to obey the commandments if we embrace the grace of the gospel. But they are not our ethos. 
our ethos is the grace of the gospel. A person cannot exude grace and law in some mixed up combination. People either exude the gospel or they exude some sort of moralistic commandment keeping religion, generally speaking. Jonah exudes law. He counts, he measures, he keeps scores, he knows what these people deserve, and they deserve judgment. And everybody loves to see justice done on somebody else. Everybody loves to see justice done on some head that's not their head. So Jonah had received mercy, abundant and free, but they deserve wrath. It's, It's amazing how quickly we forget who we are. We forget the grace we live by, the purification of our own iniquities, our own sins. It makes us blind. Right? And then we start quickly dividing the world up into the just and the unjust, the good and the evil. Those are in and those who are out. None of this denies that there's a separation, an antithesis, if you will, an enmity, a hostility between the church and the world on some level. What it affirms, however, is that the difference between being in one camp and the other is the sheer, sovereign, infinite mercy of God. And that's the thing we're constantly forgetting. And then we start to exude the law. Grace is great to get us in. But then it becomes law. So Jonah has gone from this this psalm of gratitude in chapter 2 of the book for the mercy shown to him to angrily sulking over the mercy shown to this evil city. Again, how does that happen? What script runs over and over in his mind? Something like, I mean, Christianity is fine for people in some moderate need of help. People like ourselves. Sinners, to be sure. But not pure evil. I mean, not like them. Right? Not like our enemies. Not like our political foes. Mercy is fine, but not to these destroyers of civilization who rape and plunder and pillage. Turn the other cheek? Get real, Jonah says. What about justice? Jonah asks. Right? You can see, Jonah, what about justice? Have you seen the videos of what these people have done? Just Google Assyrian war crimes. Right? So, salvation is from the Lord, Jonah told us at the end of chapter 2. And now, shortly after, it's sure, sure it is. For my kind, but we're not like them. Not only is this evil to Jonah, the text says he became angry. Literally hot. He's burning with anger. Raging anger. The same raging anger he has at these people, he now turns on God. God turned from his anger 
Jonah turns to his anger. It's quite remarkable, right? There's joy in heaven over sinners repenting on earth, and Jonah is seething. He's seething with this bitter indignation. Again, he's an object lesson in just how shallow and short-lived our repentance can be. Right? Of how quickly we forget our utter dependence on the gospel. We forget this deeply entrenched, even murderous evil, which resides in our own hearts, in our own breasts. Right? And that leads to anger. Which in our eyes is justified because the people it's directed at are really, really bad people. One of the things that's needed here with Jonah and with us, and it resonates too little with us, is that we are justified. We are set in the right before the burning face of the holy God by the righteousness of Christ alone plus nothing. Right? And a person for whom that, a person gripped by that, for whom that resonates in the wellspring of their hearts, that sort of person is not going to turn out this way. They're going to be formed differently. So we have to be careful. Are Christians and non-Christians, Christians, non-Christians, right, can easily become Jonah's self-righteous Israelites and Assyrians. And so we go on, right? What happens here is we end up moralizing endlessly, pontificating, and it's all done Far, far away from the disfigured, naked God on the cross. None of it looks like or smells like or tastes like the one who gave the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jonah's soul has come to. And this kind of thing doesn't happen overnight. And it appears, if we read on, that Jonah's been having something of an ongoing argument with God. And it's really just an attempt by Jonah at self-justification. But he is talking. They are talking. He prays to the Lord and he says this. Isn't this what I said? Now that's a brazen beginning. It's telling God, I've been saying this all along. It reminds me of the pandemic, right? If I had a dollar for every time somebody said, I've been saying this since March. Everybody's always been right all along. I've been saying this for months. We like to do this, right? So Jonah's like, this is, he's telling God, I've been saying this all along. Like, God, I've been right from the beginning. I said this when I was still in my, notice this, in my country, in my homeland. There's his nationalism. He doesn't even say when I was in the covenant people, when I was in my homeland. Israel's political well-being, her national security is in the mind of Jonah identified with the cause of God. They're collapsed into each other. And it's easy to understand it, right? I mean, how, how could this happen? Well, they're the covenant people. But it is still evil. It is still evil. And American Christians do this all the time. And we're not, we're not a nation that's chosen or uniquely covenanted to God. So what's happened? His legitimate patriotism and his legitimate loyalty have become inordinate. They've become disordered. And what they've done is they've blinded him to God's infinite mercy for the other nations. 
for the whole world. They've stripped him of a sort of Catholicity of spirit and heart and turned him into this narrow little, you know, my nation and only my nation type of thing. It's like when you hear someone described as an American Christian and you're not sure which of the two words is more weighty or decisive. Of course, if you ask, we'll always say Christian. But if you listen, you might wonder. Or you might think that American comes in a very close second here. It's a very close second. And all of this, all of this, makes Jonah bitter. You know why? Because God is not following his obvious logic of earthly justice. God is not following the Israelite first script, which runs over and over and over in Jonah's head. And so he continues explaining to God how in the know he's been. He says this, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I mean, can you imagine telling God this? I tried to forestall this outcome of Nineveh's healing. Because, then he says this to God, and here the hubris, which is already off the scale, goes higher. Because I knew, he says. I knew. I mean, I can do some theology, God. Here, let me cite Exodus 34 to you. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's about your character, which he then proceeds to do. And if you're going to cite scripture to God, you better get it right. He says this, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending catastrophe. What could be wrong with that? It's just a citation from Exodus 34. But you know what's wrong with it? It's a simplistic and distorted picture of God because it's a selective reading of the text. He leaves the context out. He actually leaves off the very next phrase because it doesn't serve his purposes. The next phrase of Exodus 34, which says, God does forgive iniquity, but, but he will by no means clear the guilty or leave them unpunished. So this relationship between God's justice and mercy, much more complicated and mysterious than Jonah grasps. Jonah paints this picture of God as one who only loves. He only loves. He's only forgiving. He only relents. And that's just too far for Jonah. He wants justice. He resents this. Give me more justice. For them, of course, not for me. So this selective use of Scripture is wicked. This is what I want you to see here. Right? This is not a situation where, you know, you can kind of be in the neighborhood with a text. Right? This selective quoting of a text is almost always a sign in us of self-righteousness. You can hear it in Jonah's, this is what I said. I knew it. Right? This is the kind of person now that Jonah's become who pours over scripture saying, aha, I am right. I am right. Right? This is a grotesque example of a person sitting over the top of the text and not under the text. 
This is a person who's using the text as a support or a prop or a tool for self-justification. So let me just say this. If the scripture is not shocking us, right, one of the symptoms of this is we always talk about how, how these other people really need to hear these scriptures or this scripture. But if the text is not shocking us and humbling us and breaking us and shattering us and overthrowing us and slaying us and making us alive and only then comforting us, only then comforting us, then the text is being used as a weapon. Right? It's not being read by trembling, open-minded servants. It's a third commandment and a ninth commandment violation to do what Jonah's doing. It is taking God's name in vain by this partial quotation, and it is bearing false witness against God. Jonah is about 85% right in his quotation, but it doesn't matter. It's an egregious violation, right? And this... So you can be right in the middle of your Bible study, right? Right in the middle of your devotions and doing this. We all have this, right? Do you sit under the text or do you sit over the text? Are you being interrogated by the text or are you using the text as a weapon? Because Bible reading itself is a dangerous thing because it brings us face to face with a dangerous God who's not going to be used as a prop by us. So when one does this, when one cites the text, leaves out the context, right, for some sort of self-righteous end like Jonah does, I want you to be clear. This is satanic. Where it was Satan, Satan is the original scripture twister, and he's very, very good at it. So Jonah's saying something like this. Here's what he's doing. He says, yeah, I knew you're all love and mercy, no justice. It's basically what he's saying to God. You're all love and mercy, no justice. You can see how slanderous that is. And I've even got scripture to support this. So in despair, what happens? He actually then asked for an act of divine euthanasia. Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. Here he's the anti-Paul who said it's better to depart and be with Christ, but who said it in the spirit of the gospel. Here's a man who lives by the spirit of the law and says it in the spirit of the law. It's better for me to die than to live. So again, step back for a minute and ask yourself across the course of this book, what has happened to this man? His national pride, his covenant loyalty to Israel, and his desire to see justice. Now notice, none of these things are bad in themselves. This is why this is such tricky stuff. None of them are bad, but they are all disordered in Jonah. All disordered. And none of it, then, has brought him any joy. He has the sentence of death within himself. And here is, of course, one of the main lessons that he and we have to learn, beloved. Right? No earthly thing. Not family, not politics, not even your church. Not your loyalty to America or your loyalty to Israel, to put it in Jonah's terms. Nothing can substitute for having God himself as the chief fountain of joy and delight in our lives. Right? And if we don't have that, we can't disguise it, right? You know, this week I had an opportunity to hear, uh, I was recalled to my mind, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7. 
the first paragraph there, I'm going to read you a little bit of it. It says this. And it's, this is the chapter on the covenant in the Confessions. right? So it's, it's why we're covenant people around here. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, except by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he's been pleased to express by way of covenant. So let me, let me just unpack this a little bit. The point I want you to see is very simple. God makes covenant with us so that he himself would be our blessedness and reward. It's so simple that it's often obscured to us, right? The reason for covenants is that God himself, the covenant's not an end in itself. The covenant's not a tool for this and a tool for that. And a tool. The covenant is so because God infinitely condescends so that we would have fruition, the fruit The end of our lives would be he himself being our blessedness and reward. Or as he says to Abraham, I am your exceedingly great reward. Right? So if I had a dollar for every time someone used the word covenant around me, I could retire right now very comfortably. But if I had a dollar for every time said to me, someone said to me, the purpose of the covenant is such that God himself has become my blessedness and reward. I'd have maybe $3. You can see that this is a classic example how you can be playing with all the right concepts and words and have the whole thing monstrously out of order. In other words, if you're reformed and you're marked by the covenant, then people should say, oh, those are the people for whom God himself and no earthly thing is their blessedness and reward. But they don't say that, do they? So it's fascinating, right? Jonah has made something besides God the source of his joy. And for us, it must be God and and not God in something else, even something else noble. Not God in my ministry. Not God in my commitment to X. God himself. He is our blessedness and our reward. The God that Jonah has just maliciously slandered the God of all of Exodus 34, the God who Moses panted to see his glory. Show me your face. Show me your glory. That God. That's the passage that Jonah quotes from. But he's missed the whole ethos of the passage. And so everything else that competes with the light and the splendor of our glorious God is an idol. And there are lots of Christian idols in the world. There are lots of Christian idols. Now, if this is not the case, then you can be a Bible-quoting, covenant-loving prophet and still want to die. You'll eventually get depressed because these other counterfeit gods don't deliver. Even Christian counterfeit gods don't deliver. And so what happens in the text? The Lord, with this exquisite patience, with his great gentleness, like a father with a wayward child, he replies with a question to Jonah. I mean, he takes all of this hubris from Jonah, and he just asks him a very simple question. There are actually three questions in this text. They're all rhetorical, and they actually correspond to the three points of this sermon. And they're designed, they're all designed by our our Lord to make Jonah think, like to give him some level of self-awareness. Right? You call it the Yahwistic method. 
Before there was a Socratic method, there was Yahweh's method, which is often asking questions. So here it is. Here's the question. Is it right? (laughs) Is it right for you to be angry? Now, that is not hard, right? I mean, that... That's children's catechism stuff, right, Jonah? You can get the answer to this one right. It's very, very simple. It reminds me of uh, when I was in college taking calculus. I had this professor who was this dry-witted Irishman, very funny guy. And uh, he hands us back our tests one day. I get my test back, and my friend is sitting right next to me in the class. He gets his test back. And I, I see there's some red ink on his paper. He had worked the, through the whole problem, worked through the whole problem, and he got to his answer, and the answer said, he, his answer was X equals 49 over 7. And the professor wrote, and I remember this to this day, he wrote, I bet even you could simplify this. <laughs> right? So, I mean, it it was really simple, right? Well, this is a very, very, very simple question. This is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth saying to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Yes, there's a righteous anger. But we're often wrongly convinced that that's what we're exercising. This is unjust anger. This is unjust anger. And this kind of anger leads to depression. I want you to see that there is a connection. There is a clinical connection between being angry and being depressed. This kind of anger leads to depression and it leads to isolation. It curves a person back in on themselves, right? Someone famously said that the the feast at the banquet of anger is you, right? You're eating your own soul up with this stuff, Jonah, And this is always a sign of a counterfeit God. For Jonah, what's the counterfeit God? Again, I want to be clear. It's his distortion of the covenant. It's his inordinate love. Inordinate love of his country. For Jonah, the covenant is not about making God your blessedness and reward. It's about getting the political outcomes he wants. And so it exposes his lack of love for the whole world, his non-existent love, really his hatred for his enemies. Right? We ought not to kid ourselves here. The Jonas of the world still sit comfortably in our own hearts and in our own pews. For now, the Lord probes like a good therapist, asking Jonah, you know, Is your righteous just? Your anger just? So that's the first point. The second point is the plant. So what happens in the text? Jonah ignores God's question, right? Which will tell you about the state of his soul, right? He's not the type of man who wants to be interrogated by God. He wants to do the interrogating. So he goes out east of the city, and he makes himself a shelter. He sits in the shade because he literally needs to cool down. And he waits to see what will happen. He still, it appears, is holding out hope that judgment will fall on them. Maybe God will relent of his relenting and judge them anyway. I mean, think about it. He could go back. He could teach and disciple the newly converted Ninevites. But he leaves. He leaves. He sits, waits. And the Lord... Again, in his patience and his kindness, the sovereign gentleness of God, he provides this leafy plant to grow up, makes it shade Jonah to ease his discomfort. 
literally to cool him off. Hebrew authors love puns, right? And there's a pun here. The word for Jonah's discomfort is a pun on his anger. The, the idea is that he's hot under the collar in more ways than one. And so God has been throughout the whole book a sovereign teacher. He uses the whole created order as a classroom. Right? He sent a great wind. He appointed a fish. Now he appoints a plant. He's going to appoint a worm. And then he's going to appoint a scorching wind. And then we're told Jonah was not happy, very happy with the plant. This is what happens when God himself is not a person's chief end. All order and proportion are lost. He's exceedingly angry about Nineveh's salvation. He's exceedingly glad about his little plant. So what makes a person really happy will tell you a lot about that person. Anyway, Jonah's probably thinking, finally, finally, I caught a break from God. But the divine lesson's not over. Class is just getting going. God appoints a worm, chews the plant, the plant withers, the sun rises, God appoints a scorching wind, Jonah grows faint. Now he thinks, well, maybe I really can't catch a break. Certainly God must seem elusive and mysterious to Jonah at this point. Maybe God's even toying with him. It turns out that God is a complex character, and Jonah would like him to be much more manageable, much simpler than he is. So he despairs of his life again, and he says, it'd be better for me to die than to live. And God asks his second question, very similar to the first one. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Again, not hard, really, not hard. You might want to rethink your anger if God asks you that. Not Jonah. You know what he says? It is. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah's answer is, yes. I'll take yes. He goes, I have every right. I have every right. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. So what a like a narrow, juvenile world he has constructed for himself. But churches are full of people tangled up in the little nothings of life. Plants and a river of other trivialities make us angry, or they irritate us, or they raise the level of our passion. The triune being of God, not so much. The worldwide proclamation of his mercy, eh, you know. but plants, the plants... We are Jonah. This is the thing. We are Jonah. Jonah is all of us. Right? We're easily diverted into second-order things, and we collapse them into the first-order thing. If you want to put the idolatry of Jonah in a simple sentence, it would be something like this. He has taken good second- and third-order things and made them first-order things. That is the essence of idolatry. Right? People don't make up some generally underworld demonic being and start worshiping it. They take a noble, honorable thing and then just blow it all out of proportion and make it a first order thing. Right? That's what we do. We're diverted. Jonah's, this behavior of Jonah's is vile, but beloved, it's like looking in a mirror for us. We should be cautious not to judge him. We should sit under the word and let it judge us. Finally, pity. Verse 10. 
The Lord says, you've shown concern. You've had pity about this plant. Though you didn't tend it, you didn't make it grow. It was a gift, God says. It required no labor. Sprang up and then it died. Right? You, can't keep, you can't keep the things you love anyway, these second order things. You're not keeping them. They're going to provide you some comfort for a little while, then they're going to be gone. Like human beings, right? One minute you're here, the next minute you're gone. And God's saying, look, you know, I gave you this gift. What are you going to be angry about it? And so God gives him a third question. And here the third question is a very famous form of reasoning um, used by the prophets, but also used by the rabbis. It's, a, it's called like how much more, right? If this lesser thing is true, how much more should this greater thing be true? If you, Jonah, if you, Jonah, are full of compassion for a plant, God says, should I not have pity or compassion for the great city of Nineveh? What a great teacher God is. He's teaching Jonah with just three questions. <laughs> the ability to ask and hear the right sorts of questions is really key to learning, but we'll leave that aside for now. So if you are full of compassion for a plant, don't you think I could have compassion on this great city? So God, and Jonah can't grasp this, right? God is attached to the brutal city of Nineveh. He has compassion. He weeps, and Jonah wants fire called down on it. Should I not have compassion for the great city in which, God says, there are more than 120,000 people who cannot know their right hand or cannot tell their right hand from their left? I love, I love the tenderness of this description. God does not say that the Ninevites are stupid or they're fools or they're God-hating, wicked, evil people. Though that may have been accurate. I mean, after all, we need to remember, God did threaten them with wrath. He does not wink at evil. He is the God of justice. But, we, but I want you to see here just how generous the just God is, right? This is an extraordinarily gracious assessment of an evil enemy city. Yes, they are guilty. Yes, they are responsible for their actions. But what does God see? He sees their lostness, their helplessness, their confusion, their blindness, their ignorance. He sees not monsters, but confused, straying people who can't tell their right hand from their left. Think of the last time you described one of your political enemies with that kind of generosity. Right? This is part of a monstrous regime, and God, and God says to Jonah, they can't tell their right hand from their left. There's a certain lostness here. He sees them with this deep compassion. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Jonah doesn't see the image of God. He doesn't see the common grace of God in Nineveh. He just sees evil, period. And then this final divine appeal ends the book. Should I not have pity on the people? And also, the many animals. What an ending that is to the book. God is deeply attached not only to Nineveh, but to their animals. And how hard and narrow is this us versus them thing that Jonah's? Jonah has no Catholicity of personality, no ability for his heart to be cracked open and try and embrace the whole world in the mercy of God without, of course, ever excusing evil or sin. That's how God is. That's how Jesus is. But it's not how Jonah is. 
God says, I pity not only the wicked, I have compassion. The bowels of my inner being are moved, not just for the people, but for the animals of the wicked. For the animals of the wicked. And that's it. The book ends with this open question from the Lord to this peevish prophet. By the way, that's just like the end of the parable of the prodigal son. The reader is like, at the end of the parable of the prodigal son, the father goes out and he pleads with this elder brother, basically, to repent. And the reader's left wondering, will the prodigal son come back in and join the feast? Will the prodigal prophet respond to the father's kindnesses? So let me conclude, and this is easy here and straightforward, I think. The God who loves this great wicked city is unveiled in human form in Jesus Christ. Right There we see the God of Jonah. For remember, and we heard this in the gospel lesson, Jesus weeps with compassion over Jerusalem, the very city that was under his judgment, the very city that would put him to death, the very city that he himself, risen and ascended, would destroy, the city which murders the prophets. Now think about this. And Jerusalem is much worse than Nineveh because in another place in the Gospels, what does Jesus say? The men of Nineveh will rise up against this generation. Right? What Jerusalem is doing is infinitely worse than what Nineveh does. And Jesus comes into the heart of Jerusalem weeping, saying, if only you knew, if only you knew what made for peace. The God of Nineveh, who speaks of people as not knowing their right hand from their left. I'll encourage you, I'll just stop here and say, that I would encourage you to take that up as your moniker the next time you see something evil on the news that sets you off. Just say, oh Lord, they don't know their right hand from their left. It's an extraordinarily generous and gentle way, and it refocuses you on their need for mercy, the same mercy which has saved you. Right? They don't know their right hand from their left. Right? So the God of Nineveh who speaks this way, when he unveils himself fully, he is the crucified one who says of his murderers, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. It's almost the same language. They don't know what they're doing. So unlike us, right, we don't have a God who merely pities the pitiable, Anyone can do that. But he pities the undeserving and the treacherous and the hateful and the enemy, people like us. So this God finally resolves this riddle that's eluding Jonah of his mercy and his justice. He does it in the cross of Christ. Right, so you look at the cross. There you see God upholds his justice. But out of that cross, the oceanic mercy of God flows out to the ends of the world. God is able to uphold his justice. You're rarely going to have to worry about that. Preach the gospel. Live the gospel. Yes, you're called to do justice as well, but God will uphold his justice in the world. He will be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Make this God, make this God revealed in Christ your all in all, right? The fountain and source of your joy and happiness. Other fountains will dry up. Right? Make this God your blessedness and reward. That is why he's entered into covenant with you. And this is the path, beloved, to ridding ourselves 
of our, of our kind of fragile self-righteousness, which ends up leading us to be angry and often depressed. Right? This is the path to replacing anger with true pity, not self-pity. Jonah has anger and self-pity. We want to replace anger with true pity. When God is our blessedness and reward, that is the key to replacing narrow-minded anger with the compassionate heart of God for the world, for the whole world, the whole world in all of its broken, brutal glory. Amen.